when I sort of went back to basics, to like the elemental Peter, I figured out that what really is important to me is other people connecting with people, reading and writing. And I sort of got back on track and I realized that in a lot of ways, things really got off track when I entered the super high stress world of being a doctor. Today on the Social Exchange Podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Grinspoon. Peter is a physician at Mass General Hospital. He teaches at Harvard Medical School, and he's also an expert on medical cannabis. He wrote a book in 2016 called Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. This was a memoir in which he confesses to and recounts his trajectory away from opiate addiction and toward greater horizons. Today, Peter and I are talking about MAT, medication-assisted treatment for opioid addiction. I spoke with Mark Sheeran a few weeks ago about the same topic. Mark's position is clear. He's okay with people taking the drugs that they choose to take, but he opposes the entire MAT movement, if you will. He calls it the mat trap. Peter Grinspoon shares a very different perspective, and he does so in our talk. He wholeheartedly supports MAT, and he's actually concerned that not enough people are being offered access to it. I will no longer stand between you and my interview with Dr. Peter Grinspoon. Here it is. I'm here with Dr. Peter Grinspoon. Peter, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So for folks who don't know, you're a, a primary care doctor in Boston. Peter teaches at Harvard Medical School. He's also author of the book Free Refills, which is a reflection of some important experiences that he's had and which also forms the basis for many of his current projects. So Peter, before we get into all of this, will you catch people up on your background and uh, what you do now on a day-to-day -day basis? Absolutely. I'm a primary care doctor um, at an inner city clinic in sort of a down and out part of Boston. And I also specialize in medical cannabis. So I do a lot of advocacy and clinical work with medical cannabis. You mentioned my book. I'm a physician who is in recovery from opiate addiction. It's not at all uncommon for a physician to have struggled with drugs and or alcohol because we have great access to medications and we have great stress in our lives. Uh, the the profession is really in a lot of trouble. We have the highest suicide rate of any profession and we're undergoing an epidemic of burnout right now. What is unusual is that I came forward with my um, addiction and wrote a memoir about it because I wanted to um, confront this taboo subject head on to try to uh, lessen the stigma around it because physicians and other healthcare providers, when they get in trouble with drugs or alcohol or depression, they tend to get punished, not treated. And I think that's just a really awful situation on a whole number of levels. It's awful for the patients, it's awful for the physicians, and it's awful for society. So I'm hoping uh, to lessen that stigma a little bit so that people can get help when they're struggling. Yeah, well, let's use your book as an inroad to all of this. Um, your book, Free Refills, which is part biography, as you mentioned, you tell a personal story about developing an opioid addiction and sort of developing out of your addiction and what that experience was like as a practicing doctor. And in the book, you also discuss inconsistencies and, and the wrongheadedness of some of our current, let's say, drug policies and our typical attitudes towards addiction. So will you talk about what that experience was like for you, the one you detailed in the book and, and then your basis for writing it, as you've sort of touched on here? Well, you know, it's sort of a, a big topic. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, I grew up in a, a sort of drug permissive family, spe specifically cannabis, because my 
father, Lester Grinspoon, was a big uh, cannabis activist. Activist. He was a real champion for um, legalization and for um, trying to get uh, medical cannabis um, available for people who needed it um, for the last 50 years, literally. And as a physician, I've, I've really struggled with the fact that a lot of uh, physicians have been sort of conditioned and propagandized against medical cannabis. Whereas growing up, my brother Danny um, suffered from leukemia, and literally the only thing that helped him with his nausea and vomiting, the only thing that helped him uh, hold food down was medical cannabis. So mm-hmm. I've known that medical cannabis works, and I've confronted like my entire medical career with skeptical physicians saying that it doesn't work. So I've been in this um, position of like sort of know, uh, knowing and believing in my father's work and facing a lot of skepticism. Luckily and fortuitously, um, the skepticism has been uh, waning, and the acceptance of medical cannabis has reached the point where about 93% of Americans think that medical cannabis should be legal and available for people to use. So we've really seen a sea change in public perception. But um, then, uh, you know, I never had a, a problem with cannabis. I've used it uh, much of my adult life, uh, at least in the past. But um, when I was in medical school, you get exposed to everything. Uh, you know, not every medical student takes everything. You know, every medical student thinks they have every disease that they study, but not every <laughs> medical student thinks that it takes every drug. But I was always, you know, trying to alleviate my boredom and always very, um, you know, curious about drugs. And so I tried everything and I never had any problems until I tried opiates and opiates like flipped a switch for me that had never been flipped before. It made me like way too euphoric. Um, and I spent, as I detail in my book, Free Refills, the next 10 years trying to create that initial experience that I got when I first took Vicodin, that initial like profound euphoria, you know, and it's just really interesting to me, you know, I, on book tours, you know, a woman would say, I took Vicodin after my C-section and I didn't get very euphoric. Why would it make you euphoric? And then, you know, I remember at a physician recovery meeting, another person who suffered from horrible alcoholism said, I took my first drink at age 14, and I never stopped drinking from that point on. And whereas I personally never could take, you know, could take or leave alcohol, it never did anything for me. So I think part of it is how our brains are configured. Some of us are a lot more susceptible than others to certain drugs, and you don't know who it's going to be or how it's going to affect you. So there's just a little bit of chance and genetics and bad luck involved. But no matter what, I, I got very addicted. And once you're addicted, for anybody, but especially for a physician, there's nowhere to turn. You're sort of trapped because the minute you ask for help, they say, oh, you're dangerous. Let's take your license away. So who on earth would ask for help? So, And that's the worst case scenario you could have because then you just get worse and worse and worse. And what happened to me is I got to the point where I was writing fake prescriptions, things that I would never do in a million years. I'm actually a very ethical person, but I was writing these bogus prescriptions. And it got to the point where the state police and the DEA raided my office, and it was downhill from there until I got into recovery. Then it's been uphill ever since for the last 11 years. But it was quite a roller coaster ride, and I wouldn't really recommend it for anyone. You uh, mentioned this kind of euphoria that you got, and so I just want to ask, when you were taking opioids off prescription, and and then when you were uh, doing so regularly, and and the behaviors you exhibited were more and more illegal or against your values, what kinds of experiences were you seeking that opioids helped you achieve? 
Well, part of it was that I was in a really unhappy part of my life. I was in a very unhappy marriage and the medical training is so brutal. I mean, we're literally working a hundred hours a week, which is inhumane. And no matter what would be happening, even if I had like the flu, I could just take pills and feel great. I mean, it literally could turn any it could medicate any bad mood away and could replace it with like you feeling as happy as you've ever felt. I mean, these pills are incredibly dangerous. I mean, I think a lot of drugs are dangerous in the sense, and I'm someone who thinks drugs should be legal across the board and treated as a health problem, not as a criminal justice problem. But I think that they're dangerous in the sense that they really can um, get rid of any bad feelings and that people can get dependent on them because they're so effective at changing your mood. That's why they need to be regulated and people need to be educated. I just don't think you should put people in cages for using them. That doesn't make any sense at all. But um, the experiences I was seeking were anything bad. I mean, 36 hour shift, You'd go home, you'd be in shambles, your life would sort of be in shambles because you've been away from it for so long. You'd mentally and physically be in shambles from working 36 hours straight, you haven't slept, you haven't eaten well, and then you pop you know, five or six Vicodin and you'd feel on top of the world, you'd be ready for anything. I mean, it's amazing what, it's all fake, none of it's real. This, it's all illusory, the happiness that it gives you, but at the time it really gives you a tremendous feeling of relief and again, because it's so fake, but so pervasive, the feeling of happiness that it gives you, it's really dangerous. Maybe put somewhat differently, what was happening, or, or perhaps it's reasonable to ask what wasn't happening in your life at the time that made taking opioids feel like the best way to achieve these things, uh, despite other channels like more naturally that you might pursue? Well, it becomes a feedback cycle. What mm -hmm. wasn't happening is that I wasn't getting... Um, all the things you need to flourish as a human being naturally, like um, connection with other people, that's the main thing, but enough sleep, enough exercise, enough rest, um, enough positive reinforcement. Um, and, you know, they say connection is the opposite of addiction. And that that's what a lot of recovery is about. It's not just by any means about not taking drugs. It's about learning how to connect with other people and learning how to listen and be present in the moment really makes you a much better doctor actually having gone through all of this. Not that I would necessarily recommend getting addicted to opiates as part of the standard medical training, but um, <laughs> it really does help you because you learn, you're no longer this like narcissistic person that thinks they're better than everybody else. It's such a humbling experience. You're much more empathic and, and down to earth. And I really think that connecting to other people is the cornerstone of A, being a happy, healthy person and B, being a good doctor. I mean, they're overlap. And as you get addicted, your emotional um, engagements become increasingly with the drug and you tune other people out more and more and more. So toward the end, I was really lonely, but I did had no idea that I was because I had my best friend Percocet and my best friend Vicodin that could make any sense of loneliness or unhappiness go away at any moment. And then, you know, the minute you're forced into recovery, i.e. like, for example, when you get in a lot of trouble and you have to take drug tests to keep your medical license or to gain it back, you're like so lonely because you've alienated all the people around you and you don't have the main crutch, which is that which your emotional reactions have all been keyed to, which is the drug is all of a sudden taken away. It's very brutal making that transition. And I think that people are understanding just as they're understanding how childhood trauma is a very big component of why people develop addictions, they're understanding that healthy interpersonal relationships, in addition to neurochemistry and medication-assisted so treatment. At, at the risk of, and, and I will get back to it, but at the risk of 
uh, missing out on a, a critical middle section here. It sounds like you were making a lot of decisions that completely violated your own values and, and your self-interest. So when did you and how did you begin to regain balance in your life when that started happening? Well, it's interesting. I'm philosophically opposed to forced treatment for addiction. And there's been a lot of evidence that people do better when they enter uh, treatment voluntarily rather than when they're forced. Like you think of the desperate family members committing a family member for mandated treatment. But in my particular case, I was pretty much forced into treatment because they basically said, if you don't get this comprehensive treatment program that we have for physicians, which lasts for about five years, which involves like 20 gallons of urine testing and, you know, rehab and, you know, five years of following up with a therapist, support groups, a monitor, et cetera, et cetera, like really intensive um, treatment. I never would have made it. I literally never would have gotten into recovery. So again, while I'm not a big fan of forcing people into treatment, I personally was forced into treatment, and I'm very skeptical that I'd even be alive today if I weren't dragged kicking and screaming into recovery. But, you know, it's this complex process of uh, personal growth and neurobiological healing working together that um, eventually you stop having the cravings and you start reconnecting with other people. It's really hard the first three to six months. You're dealing with the shambles of your life and you're utterly miserable physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. But, um, you know, you start making, take, you know, you keep putting one foot in front of the other and then you start making connections and it's slowly your brain starts coming back to normal and you start gaining pleasure from other things besides taking drugs. And it's like this invisible process. And then a year later, you're like, hey, I'm enjoying myself. I haven't thought about taking drugs in a whole two weeks. And sort of magically you get you kind of return to the human race. It's pretty amazing. We hope you're enjoying the show. If you like the show, please support us. You don't have to spend a dollar to do so. For example, you can simply take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes or whichever podcast app from which you're listening. We are steadily increasing the number of downloads we get each show, but we really don't have many reviews, so yours will take us a long way in what's called searchability. And if donating a few dollars is reasonable for you, we encourage you to donate to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the social exchange. Your contribution helps us update audio equipment and software and enhance the quality of the show. It also helps with things like travel for interviews as well as funding for the forthcoming Families for Sensible Drug Policy podcast. Again, if you're a fan of the show, help us remain stable so that we can generate more content in less time. Donate at patreon.com slash the social exchange. That's patreon.com slash the social exchange. We want to thank all of our patrons. Thanks to Andre Pompel, Christopher Hanlon, Dee Dee Stout, Carter Vermont, run by Dr. Rick Barnett, and Earl Inigo, John Holt, Layla Ferguson, Mary Kay Villaverde, Michelle, Nancy, Sean Holt, Regina Ferguson, Timmy Tucker, Christian, Kathleen Cochran, Marjorie Israel, Diane T, Trevor, Susan Matthew, and my dear parents, Thomas and Linda Rhodes. One last time, you can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash the social exchange. Enjoy the rest of the interview with Dr. Peter Grinspoon. So I should backtrack now. You mentioned, I did skip over a crucial part of the movie here, uh, which is that you mentioned being investigated, and so you were in legal trouble. 
Um, talk about what that experience was like. Oh my God. I was on uh, supervised probation for two years, meaning I had to report to the basement of this dingy courtroom in sort of a up and coming now, but back then a dingy part of Boston. And it was so um, out of context for me. I'd like take my kids to preschool, mow the suburban lawn. Then I'd go to the basement and get yelled at by my probation officer. Then I'd go to a forced class on addiction with all the other uh, screw-ups and sort of pro- probationees. Then I'd go back and pick my kids up in the sub, you know, in the suburbs from preschool. And it was just so discontiguous with the rest of my life. Hmm. And it was really a great experience in that it was humbling and it made me realize that, you know, all people who are addicted are the same. Uh, there are no special privileges for anybody. I mean, I did get special privileges in retrospect because I was white and because probably because I was upper middle class. I think that um, if I did what I did as a minority, I very well might have ended up in prison. So I probably got cut a big break in retrospect. At the time, I had no idea. I was really scared. You know, I couldn't leave the state without permission from my probation officer or I could get arrested um, by Homeland Security. I had very few privileges and I was getting drug tested like two or three times a week. Uh, it was a really, really scary process. And I had to go to rehab for 90 days. They sent me to this rehab in the South, which was very religious. And they ended each meeting by reciting the Lord's Prayer. And I felt very alienated from that, just having nothing against religion or the Lord's Prayer. But I'm a Jewish atheist in the Northeast. I don't know why <laughs> the medical board would send, mandatorily send me to a 12-step Christian religious rehab. It didn't make any sense. I don't even think rehab works for people anyways. I think outpatient treatment with medication is a lot more effective. So they sent me to this rehab where we sort of re- repeated platitudes over and over again for 90 days. And that was supposed to magically make you better. Um, and they followed me for like seven years with these intensive drug tests. They hounded me and eventually I started to heal. And it was this alchemy of the carrot and the stick. You know, basically they said, you, you won't be a doctor again until you get your act together and stop flunking drug tests. And then there was the carrot of all the good things that I was seeing. You know, I was out of a bad marriage. I was starting to get into better relationships. I was reconnecting with my family. And so if you have a lot of bad things that are evaporating and a lot of good things that are materializing, that sort of conditions you to head in a certain direction. And that direction for me was was recovery. So I slowly but surely started making progress in the right direction. You mentioned this element of moral luck. You had this um, class advantage um, that, that maybe the carrots and sticks worked for you when it may not have worked for somebody else whose who's, uh, you know, contingencies would look a lot different. Um, and I'm interested in, in getting into what your treatment looked like, but I'm more interested first. And you said that if you didn't get into treatment, you're not convinced that you would have become better. What do you think would have happened if you didn't end up getting into the treatment you were actually forced into? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was so mad at the pharmacist who turned me in to the police. Um, I was furious. And it's amazing how your perspective changes over time because now I'm nothing but grateful to her. (laughs) And I think she saved my life. But at the time, I was fuming. And, you know, I was – the craziest things you do when you're addicted, or at least I did, were not on the drugs. When I was on the drugs, I pretty much slept and avoided my responsibilities. Mm. The craziest things I did was when I was drug-seeking, when I was looking for drugs – And you get so sick when you're not on the drugs and you get so desperate that you take bigger and bigger and bigger risks. 
And a couple of times I had blackouts and there was one time that I literally almost overdosed. I took way too many pills because you don't make good judgments when you're withdrawing and desperate. So, and you know, there are a couple of times I take drugs. I didn't even know what they were. I'd swallow them in case they were opiates because I was withdrawing um, just that I got from filtering through people's medicine closets. And I mean, I was taking physical risks and then I was taking legal risks, like writing these crazy prescriptions for like random people. And I was stealing medications for people. I could have hurt someone else in addition to hurting myself. So the physical and legal risk I was putting myself, here I am, you know, probably 14 years later from all that stuff, um, healthy, happy, and talking about this is just amazing. Mm. I mean, I'm not a huge AA fan for myself. I know it helps a lot of other people. They do say that addictions that are not treated end in jails, institutions, or death. And I could honestly say I agree with that. That's where I was heading. So I was just taking bigger risks, especially with the drug-seeking stuff I was doing. And I, it just wouldn't have ended well. I'm very fortunate that it ended the way it did, even though at the time it seemed like it was the worst-case scenario. It most certainly wasn't the worst-case scenario. Yeah, okay. So you were taking – the risks you were taking were greater and greater. And each time you did, it was, like you say, cyclical. And it detracted from your ability to create um, will experiences for yourself in other areas of life. So – it sounds like the fact that you were forced into something, whether it was treatment or something else, just that the spotlight was on you, sort of saved you because you kind of it kind of uh, woke you up a little bit. Like, okay, now I've got a decision to make. What would have been, if you don't love the idea of the kind of treatment they put you through, what would have been a more ideal way for you to um, ameliorate your problem? Well, the way we treat people at my hospital, I have to say, I think is really excellent. We have a multidisciplinary team of an addiction psychiatrist, a primary care doctor who's really tuned in to addiction and prescribes medication-assisted treatment, um, a collaborative care team of social workers and mental health providers, and it's very well connected together, and a recovery coach, someone if they need a bed, if they need help getting to appointments, if they're having trouble with housing or jobs. You know, and we have social workers working as well in this team. We have this really great integrated uh, comprehensive team. We have a bridge clinic, which um, helps bridge inpatient and outpatient. A lot of people get lost in the shuffle. And we have a killer addiction, not killer like kills people, killer like great addiction uh -huh. consult um, team in the hospital. Good so, distinction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever level of addiction you come to us with, whether you have endocarditis or you've overdosed, our ER doctors, 100% of them are trained in prescribing buprenorphine, 100%. So no matter where you come to us with addiction, we take care of you, we do an addiction consult, then you go to the bridge clinic, which takes care of you until you're hooked up with one of these fantastic outpatient programs. We've got a great track record. Now, I know this is a luxury in Boston. Half of the counties in our country don't even have an addiction, anybody that prescribes Suboxone or buprenorphine. Uh, there's a real shortage of people who take care of addiction. Only something like 10% of people with opiate addiction get any treatment at all. So I know this is sort of pie in the sky, but it's really cool that we do it because it shows it can be done. So that's what I would have benefited from. There's this big hypocrisy that doctors know that, uh, for example, buprenorphine is like the most effective treatment, but most medical boards don't let doctors go back to work if they're on buprenorphine because they say, 
it's you're impaired if you're on buprenorphine. So this is a perfect example of the stigma that pertains to doctors. We're not allowed to take the most effective treatment that keeps people alive for opiate addiction, even though we're more susceptible to opiate addiction than the general public. So this is exactly a type of problem that I'm trying to address by dealing with physicians and opiate addiction. It's absolutely ridiculous, the stigma and the hypocrisy that is surrounding the whole issue of physicians and addiction. What do you make about the numbers um, regarding natural recovery, let's say? So in that largely, now of course not for everybody, and it's probably not the people that you're talking about, but people over time tend to outgrow or, or develop out of or, or latch onto other more positive, um, healthy things other than their addictions. And, and what place do you think that has in, in the practice and in, in helping people overcome their addictions? Well, that's a really interesting question. It's important to remember that. Um, you know, as a primary care doctor, a lot of what I do, honestly, is to stall for time and wait for things to get better. Hmm. People want antibiotics, and I'm like, no, it's just a cold. It'll get better. Right. It's very encouraging that happens a lot of the time with addiction, though that's not the people we see. Uh, the people who get better don't come, you know, don't come back to us for that problem. They're better. We tend to see the people that are struggling. So it's important to remind ourselves of that except it doesn't help us that much because we can't really prescribe that. And addiction is so dangerous, we can't count on that. Um, you know, someone's opiate addicted. Uh, I can't just say, well, maybe you'll grow out of this, so I'm not gonna treat you. Um, I have to treat someone and hope they don't overdose. So I think it's really important to be reminded of that. But again, the people I see when I'm treating addiction or as a primary care doctor tend to be the people who are struggling because the ones who are doing well don't come to see me. So there's a certain amount of selection bias. Yeah. So it's like, it's interesting to know and it's encouraging to think about, but at the same time, it's not that helpful when you're in the trenches because those aren't the people you're seeing or trying to deal with. You're trying to deal with the really sick people who are in imminent danger. Yeah, you could, you could, there could be a moral argument against you if you just say, hey, you'll grow out of this. <laughs> um, on the other hand, is there is there anything to be gleaned about what it means for somebody to outgrow something? You know, the things in life that allow people to mature that would help you as a doctor, aside from medications, or maybe in addition to medications, help people understand about their lives or resources? Uh, oh, absolutely. But, yeah. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I wasn't allowed to use medications because I'm a doctor. Right. It goes back to this hypocrisy. Hmm. So I didn't use Suboxone and I don't use Suboxone. And it just never was an option because doctors aren't allowed to be in Suboxone. Um, so I had to figure out a path to recovery that involved sort of the old fashioned way of just figuring out how to be in recovery without medications. And while I'm not a huge fan of rehab, I think what saved me is that I had a phenomenal group therapy leader. And what he said is take away the protective persona of being a doctor. You know, and go back and try to find out what makes you happy and who you are and what really gets you motivated. And, you know, when I sort of went back to basics, to like the elemental Peter, I figured out that what really is important to me is other people connecting with people, reading and writing. And I sort of got back on track. And I realized that in a lot of ways, things really got off track when I entered the super high stress world of being a doctor. And then what my challenge was, was to re-enter being a doctor um, without, you know, being really unhealthy about it. And I feel like I've come back to it being a lot more balanced and a lot more centered. I think balance is a, is a really big part of it. And I think there is something 
to be said. You know, on the one hand, Suboxone does save lives, and a lot of people are advocating for it, um, and it saves lives even without therapy. So, you know, some places are saying, oh, we only give Suboxone if you participate in therapy. And other people are saying, no, this saves lives. It should be given out no matter what, just like any medication. We don't say you need therapy with insulin. And I agree with that. But at the same time, I think that personal growth and change is a huge component of recovery. And when you read about the fact that 70 to 80% of people who are addicted um, are also suffering from undiagnosed anxiety and depression, it seems obvious that there's a lot more to recovery than just giving a medication. It seems like it's a huge opportunity for exploring whether there's an untreated anxiety disorder, whether there's untreated depression, whether there's childhood trauma that needs to be worked through. So I'm a big proponent in uh, pursuing both avenues, though I do agree that the medication is the most important imminently for saving someone's life. Um, you mentioned returning to work and having balance in your work life when, after all this happened. And it just occurred to me that it could have been challenging to return to work. What was it like returning to the workplace after all this? Oh, well, I was terrified. I mean, I thought everybody was going to be looking down upon me, viewing me through this lens of stigma, like, look at this loser drug addict. But in reality, um, most people um, really respected what I did and sort of gave me a pat on the back for being courageous and kind of getting back on my horse. So I got a lot of really positive feedback. I'm sure there were some people who did feel that way, but they were uh, pretty quiet about it. You know, interviewing was interesting. One hospital I went to said, we'd love to hire people like you, but in reality, we're not that kind of people. We're too conservative. So you should apply elsewhere. Wow. And on the one hand, I thought that was really lame. But <laughs> on the other hand, um, I appreciated their honesty. I didn't wait like four months to, you know, hear no from them. They were straightforward with me. That's true. And then MGH uh, said, we'd love to hire you. We've had three other people in recovery and they vote on really well. And I'm very happy at MGH. So I was very impressed that they made that decision. So, you know, it's a little hit or miss, but you just have to like hold your head up high and walk through some very uncomfortable moments going back to work. It's really difficult. You feel like everybody's judging you. But in retrospect, there are so few people who haven't been personally impacted by the opiate crisis with a brother, a parent, a kid, a nephew, a niece, a, fr a best friend, that most people feel empathy. Fewer and fewer people feel stigma and scorn and disdain, and more and more people feel empathy and sort of are rooting for you. So it's really sort of inspiring. How have your own beliefs and opinions about drugs and addictions changed since going through this experience? Well, I think that I was a little bit feeling like I was invulnerable and I didn't fully appreciate the downside that drugs can have because, you know, I read about them and I studied them, but I also, you know, was so skeptical of like the D.A.R.E. program where they tell you that you take a puff of marijuana and your legs fall off and then they tell you about the other drugs. And I got such a, you know, they so overdid the anti-drug pro propaganda, um, you know, when I was in middle school and high school. And then my experiences with drugs were all positive, that I never really felt that drugs were dangerous. And then it took, now that I collided with a full-blown opiate addiction, I think I have a much more balanced view of all drugs and how they can be very helpful to people, 
medicines, drugs, how they can be very harmful to people, how they've in every society has used intoxicants since the beginning of time. So it's really unrealistic to say, just say no, that's like the stupidest thing ever. But at the same time, there's no free lunch and a lot of them can be very dangerous. So they need to be, people need to be educated and sort of guided if they're going to use them. And that they're just not a criminal justice system, a criminal justice issue. Making them illegal is where much of the harm comes from. Part of it comes from the intrinsic properties of the drugs, but a lot of the danger comes from it being illegal. So I think they need to be like Portugal, decriminalized at minimum, and the money needs to be spent on taking care of people and educating people, not locking them in cages. So I feel like I have a much more mature view on the whole drug issue, uh, both from always having been interested in it, from being the son of a sort of legendary activist on drugs, and also from my personal experience, I feel like I've gotten a lot more mature about this issue. Yeah, so, so it sounds like you have a really nuanced perspective between uh, the the risks of drugs themselves, and in this case, the risks of taking opioids versus their benefits, and then you know the responsibility of, let's say, drugs themselves versus the responsibility of um, other of cultural and societal factors that maybe existed before opioids were prescribed. If you had to assign a value, say, between 1 and 10, how much responsibility do opioids themselves get versus how much responsibility would you say other cultural societal factors get for the problems that we experience now in America? That's really tough. Um, that's a really complicated question. The opiate epidemic is so complicated with so many factors. Definitely, doctors did overprescribe him. Uh, but that was partially because of the Sacklers and Purdue Pharmaceutical misleading positions about how dangerous they were. But the doctors were sort of easily misled because patients in chronic pain are pain in the ass, and it was much easier for the doctors to just prescribe medication. So, would you say when you say overprescribing, what do you mean by that? Well, in the 1990s, doctors prescribed so much OxyContin, and there was really no reason for that many people to be on opiates, and then. A lot of people switch to street heroin because mm. it's cheaper than OxyContin. A lot of people got addicted, not necessarily by the OxyContin they were prescribed, but by the OxyContin that someone else was prescribed that they found in someone's medicine cabinet and started taking. There was just too much OxyContin floating around. And then now that the pills have dried up, people transition to heroin on the street because it's so expensive to buy the pills on the streets and the heroin is so cheap. But now the heroin's being supplanted by fentanyl, which is lethal. So that's why the prescriptions are going down, but the overdoses are still going up. So it's very complicated because the drugs are changing from pills to heroin to fentanyl, which is getting more deadly as you go along. And society is having a very wrong-headed response. First, they overprescribe the pills. Now they're cutting back on the prescribing of the pills very recklessly, which is driving people who are addicted from the pills to the street drugs, which are getting more dangerous. So that's making the problem worse. So it's this really complicated mixture of the inherent dangers of the pill of the opiates, as we're supplanting ever more dangerous opiates, and society's response, which keeps getting more and more clueless in the face of this epidemic. We need to just treat people to offer really low threshold suboxone buprenorphine to people. We need to make methadone much more accessible. 
everybody who needs treatment should have readily off available treatment. That's what France did like in the 1970s. They just lowered the threshold for treatment and people got treatment. We should give people wide availability, even with vending machines, to lower abusable opiates such as buprenorphine so that they're not overdosing on fentanyl. So I think we could have a much better uh, societal response and use safer opiates at the same time, but people are very moralistic about it. And So far as overprescribing happened, which it sounds like you're saying overprescribing is, uh, you know, prescribing en masse with l- low or no jurisprudence. Um, is it possible that, or do you ever worry about an overprescribing with respect to uh, buprenorphine and methadone? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, methadone's so tightly controlled right now, it's sort of hard to over-prescribe. Like, as a primary care doctor, I'm allowed to prescribe it for pain, but I'm not allowed to prescribe it for addiction. Um, and Suboxone doesn't get you that high. It can be abused, but it's not nearly as abusable as the other opiates. So it could be over-prescribed, but if you were, like, as an opiate addict or someone who's been addicted to opiates, I can honestly say that buprenorphine is not that exciting an opiate to abuse. So I just don't think it's going to have that kind of popularity. I think a lot of the street use of buprenorphine is to detox yourself or to deal with the fact that you're withdrawing. I don't think that many people use Suboxone or buprenorphine to get high. It doesn't get you that high. I think methadone can get you high, but it's not anybody's drug of choice. So I think there's less risk because they're just not as attractive opiates. And I think they're much less dangerous than... Um, the injectable opiates like fentanyl or heroin, or you can inject oxycodone. So I think they're intrinsically less dangerous. So sure, they can be over-prescribed, but I don't think they're intrinsically as dangerous as the other opiates. It seems like people get addicted not just to a drug, but to an overall experience. And especially, you know, somebody who injects drugs, I would imagine that Suboxone or Methadone would be good at it, tempering withdrawal, but, but maybe not as good at helping them achieve the experience that they had through the injection of drugs or, or maybe not even giving them the kind of drug experience that they're looking for. Is that something worth teasing out or do you think maybe in another interview with more time? Maybe with more time. I mean, Suboxone reduces cravings and stops people from overdosing. You know, in a perfect world, people wouldn't be on Suboxone and their brain, you know, there's an argument about whether Suboxone allows their brains to go back to baseline or not. Mm. You know, my brain has completely healed because I haven't been in an opiate for like 10 years. Whereas you could say that if you're on Suboxone, your brain never completely heals to normal. Or you could say that it's like a diabetic on insulin who's taking a medication. So their brain is healed enough to normal if they're not overdosing and if they're living a productive, happy life. It's sort of a complicated philosophical discussion. You're deeply concerned, as far as I can tell, about what's also happening to so many pain patients of late, people for whom prescription narcotics are necessary, or at least preferred for their conditions, but who are being cut off from or unable to access these narcotics. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous that the government swung their pendulum so quickly, Mm -hmm. and they're intimidating doctors not to prescribe opiates now. And there's this whole group of patients millions of them that are on high doses of opiates. And you can argue, if you go back 20 years, whether or not they should have been started in opiates or not. Some yes, some no, probably. 
But the fact is they're on opiates and the opiates that they're on are alleviating their pain. And it's unethical to force them off, to stop writing them prescriptions or to force them involuntarily to taper. You could offer them a voluntary taper, but you can't force them to taper off their medications. And that's what's happening because a lot of them are getting abandoned by their doctors because their doctors are afraid of getting in trouble. The DEA is prosecuting doctors who write too many opiates and they're writing menacing letters to us. And there's all kinds of pressure, subtle and overt, not to prescribe opiates. So they're using a very blunt instrument to get us to stop writing these prescriptions. And a lot of chronic pain patients are getting caught in the crossfire. Some of them are committing suicide. Some of them are switching to street drugs and overdosing. It's really awful being a chronic pain patient these days. If I were to speak to some people in these uh, powerful institutions, which I have, if I were being incisive, I might ask, who made you God? You know, um, but you actually, you have, you're in the position, you're a prescribing doctor. So I wonder how you personally reconcile your concerns about the risks of opioids with your concerns about people not being able to get them. Well, I try not to start people on chronic opiates because mm. I don't think they're great for pain, chronic pain anyways. Um, if someone's on chronic opiates, I don't force them to taper. I encourage them to taper. And I, in fact, use medical cannabis and try to transition them. So I think medical cannabis is as effective as opiates for chronic pain and offers a much better lifestyle. The quality of the uh, mental status change is much better. Who wouldn't want to be a little bit euphorically high rather than in an opiate stupor? Not to mention they don't cause um, constipation and you don't have to have drug screenings and narcotics contracts and the doctors prescribing it every month. It's just a much better lifestyle. And I think cannabis is as effective, if not more effective. I also have been um, finding it effective to lower the dose of people on chronic opiates with cannabis. Studies have shown that you can often lower the dose by about 80%. A lot of the risks of opiates, overdose and otherwise, are dose-related. So the way I get around it a lot of the time is to use medical cannabis instead. And I've had phenomenal success with this. People like it a lot better and has many fewer side effects. Uh, Dr. Grinspoon, I managed to burn a good portion of our time today talking <laughs> about all the things that I feel are most worthwhile. But is there anything about your story or your work that I've missed that might be worth discussing, at least for the sake of my listeners? Well, I do think that, um, as we were just starting to talk about a little bit, that cannabis is going to be a big part of the solution to the opiate crisis. Because I think that it is uh, something that is very appealing to people instead of opiates for chronic pain. Um, I think that a greater number of Americans are suffering from chronic pain. It's estimated to be up to like 40 million. You know, 80% of Americans are overweight. People are getting older. We really, really weren't built to live till 100 or 90. And people are getting achy joints. And you know, what do you do when you're 60 or 70 and you're starting to get these pretty bad aches? You can't keep taking non-steroidals like ibuprofen, aspirin, naproxen, Advil. Right. Because your kidneys give out if you don't get an ulcer. I guess that's the appeal uh, for opioids then in that case. But you can't take opioids. They make you constipated. They cause falls and no one's going to prescribe them. Hmm. And even if they do prescribe them, you they, they're not very effective because once they wear off, the pain comes back. It's worse. Hmm. They actually make the pain worse over time. And you get physically dependent on them, and they're really constipating. Um, and you have to take drug tests. They're just not very appealing medications. And Tylenol does 
nothing for that kind of pain. Right. So I think this is why the biggest um, segment of the population that's embracing medical cannabis is the baby, baby boomers. Um, I can't even tell you how many patients that are like in their 60s and 70s that are coming in for medical cannabis. And the funny part is some of them are even like, they come back to me and they're like, hey, this is fun. I remember doing this when I was in my 20s. It's really funny to see these elderly people. <laughs> but, you know, um, I just think, um, so in terms of keeping people from starting opiates mm. or transitioning them off, if they're willing, not against their will, um, and for people suffering from opiate addiction, it's pretty effective for withdrawal symptoms. And it seems to help people with the retention and the suboxone programs. So I think that in a lot of different ways, it is going to be a really important part of the opiate crisis. And I just um, find it really fascinating, um, given sort of my upbringing and my lifelong interest in medical cannabis history, unfortunate as it was, though I'm a big believer in, in if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Um, my my uh, personal experience of the opiate crisis, I've really been interested in sort of the way in which the two are coming together. Yeah, it's all sort of circled back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been great talking to you today. But before we go, will you tell people how uh, to follow you and access your book and your work in general? Absolutely. They can follow me on Twitter very easily at Peter underscore Grinspoon. That's grin like smile, spoon like fork. Uh, so just G-R-I-N-S-P-O-O-N. And they could communicate with me um, if they want just on my website, petergrinspoon.com. There's a um, communicate with me button and it goes right to my email and I will communicate back. And to get my book, they could just go to Amazon and type in free refills or free refills. A doctor confronts his addiction and my book will pop up. It's available in hardcover and Kindle in audio. And um, I'd love to hear what people think about it. I'll link to all of these things in the show notes. Dr. Peter Grinspoon, it really was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking time to talk. Well, a pleasure speaking with you. Hopefully this will be part one. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's do it again.